I am, once again, beyond excited to be able to share the Word of God uh, tonight. Uh, we are going to be digging into the book of Proverbs. So you guys can turn on over to Proverbs chapter 1. We'll be bouncing around a little bit, but I, I would like to really delve into chapter 1 a lot because when it comes to certain books, there's, there's a few things that really stick out to me. Uh, Psalm 1. Proverbs 1, both of them, they are really amazing when you get and really dig into it because both of them seem to set you on a course for, in terms of Psalms, the next 150 chapters and in terms of Proverbs, the next 31 chapters, really Proverbs 1 and Psalm 1. They're so beautiful reading one by one together, especially when you read Psalm 1 and you read specifically about God's word and how we should be meditating on it day and night. And we'll be like the tree planted against the water that bears fruit in its season. And those who sit in the seat of scoffers, those who do not meditate on God's word, those are the one that break off when the wind comes by. And so we see that, and that sets us on a course for the rest of those psalms. And I really do believe, and when it comes to Proverbs, Proverbs always has had a special place in my heart because as a brand new believer, I had someone that I was talking to at the time. I, I used to go to the gym at 24 Hour Fitness and I worked as a server. So I'd serve late at night. I'm sorry, I'm, a little, I'm hearing a little buzz back there. I'd serve late at night and usually get off and then just go right to the gym especially because I had gotten saved and I didn't want to go to the party lifestyle, so I'd go to work out instead. And there was a guy there, a professing believer, and after a couple months into my walk, he had encouraged me. He said, I said, hey, he said, hey, what are you reading? What are you reading in scripture right now? And I said, well, I started with Matthew, and then I went through Revelation, and I think I was probably working through somewhere in Genesis, Exodus, or Leviticus, or something at that time. And he had said, hey man, I wanna challenge you to something. I think this would be a benefit to your walk. He said, check out the book of Proverbs. He's like, still keep your reading, so you're reading the whole Bible, but go to the book of Proverbs and every single day of the month, spend that month highlighting the things that you say, hey, wait a second, this can change in my life. If I highlight this, it's something I need to improve in my newfound walk with Christ. I, I, I see this, I recognize it, and I, I say, highlight it and just say, I want to improve my walk with Christ by using the wisdom of God in order to do that. And so I started that, and pretty much all of Proverbs was highlighted, you know, at that time, because we believe in progressive sanctification. Uh, that means that over the time of being a believer, once you come to know Christ, he begins to sanctify you, becomes to make you more and more conform to the image of his son. And when it comes to the word of God, the word of God is used quite clearly for sanctification. In fact, when you think about Jesus before he went to the cross, before he was taken, in John chapter 17, he tells them, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. So we wanna be sanctified. It tells of husbands to wash their wives in the word because the word is clean. The word cleans us and sanctifies us and makes us more and more like Jesus. You remember when Jesus would rebuke even Satan himself, he would say over and over again, for it is written. So if Jesus is relying on the word of God, I'm going to rely on the word of God. But that endeavor in which I took the book of Proverbs and I really started to highlight and look at those things day by day in my life that I need to improve, it really was a life-changing thing for me. 
uh, even in my Christian walk. And so I always encourage people, especially young believers, make sure you understand the gospel first. That's, that's first and foremost. You have to understand why Jesus Christ died a horrible death on a cross on your behalf. But also, check out the book of Proverbs. And these things can benefit our walks with Christ. And so I want to dig in with you tonight in the book of Proverbs. As I said, we're going to start in verse 1. But before we get here, I do think it is really important for us to understand the application. One of the things, uh, the science of studying the Bible is called hermeneutics. And, and that basically is just simply when I'm reading something, I want to know the context of it. And when I'm reading something, who is it written to, when was it written, and so forth, and does that matter as to how I apply it to my life? Does that matter as how I apply it to me? In fact, so many people will take promises from Scripture, like Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of the greatest places to look at, and you see it's beautiful. You might see it on, some, uh, on a coffee cup at Grandma's house or on the wall, right? And a lot of people forget the context of that, and that is a promise, yes, that God is going to prosper Israel, a promise to Israel that it is for their good, but also it's a promise tied to them going into Babylonian captivity. So sometimes we apply these promises, but we don't always remember what, what's coming alongside of that. But one of the beautiful things when we look at that promise is actually it's far more beautiful when it's understood in its context, which tells us something that Romans chapter 8 tells us. And that is specifically, and when we look at Romans chapter 8, the fact is, is that God will work together all things, not some things, not the happy things, right? Not just the bad things either, but all things for the good, for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. And I believe that would line up very, very beautifully with what takes place in Jeremiah 29 because they're about to go into Babylonian captivity. It's about to get really ugly. Their friends and family are gonna die, right? It's going to be horrible. And they think that God, God is leaving us. It's gone. Every time they went into captivity, whether it was the Assyrians first with Israel or whether it was Judah then going into captivity, every time they thought, well, we're, you know, we'll never go into captivity. And if we did, we'd never get out of it. But God always has a purpose. God always has a plan. And that's, it's much more beautiful when we look at the scriptures in light of the context. Amen? So it's really, really important. And so when we look at Proverbs, a lot of people, and I've heard this from Bible teachers, I've watched things online, a lot of people say, well, if you just look at Proverbs and anyone can take it, and if you take the book of Proverbs, you start reading from it, you live it, you'll have a better life. Now, I will say there are plenty of nuggets of truth in the book of Proverbs that if applied even by the unbeliever, that guess what? They'll be blessed through that, whether that's through finances, being a hard worker and not a sluggard, right? Whether it's not going off into adultery and so forth. So yes, obviously applying it. But ultimately, we have to recognize as believers living under the new covenant that we live in now, looking back at the Old Testament and the wisdom of Proverbs, that when we look at it, we look at it from looking back at the cross, recognizing us as safe people. When we apply this to our life, we are going to be ultimately blessed, whereas a non-believer, it actually says in Proverbs, Proverbs alone, 15, 8 through 9, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So when you have people practicing 
things in Proverbs, but yet they deny Jesus Christ himself, that's abominable. That's a stench to the Lord. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, when it talks about the good works of what was the Israelites at that time, their good works are filthy rags. So we're talking not even, the, not even the bad things they're doing. So we're talking about these righteous deeds and so forth, but if they're not done in Christ, ultimately they're for naught, they're for nothing. And if we are not living our life with Christ in mind, with eternity in our hearts, looking forward to our ultimate salvation that will happen at his second coming, then guess what? Then we're missing out completely, I believe, on the book of Proverbs in growing in wisdom. So we need to recognize that. In fact, when it comes to Proverbs, it's not just knowledge because knowledge is great in the book of Proverbs, but ultimately it's wisdom personified here in Proverbs that we're really trying to grasp and understand. It's wisdom in the Proverbs that is really going to be worn on us and adorn as a necklace. That's what we want to do. And it's not just simply knowledge, and I love the analogy of knowledge versus wisdom. A very simple one could come on a carton of cigarettes, right? The surgeon's general warning, right? You see a carton of cigarettes and it's like, your teeth will fall out, you'll smell really bad, you know, whatever, and then you'll die of lung cancer. I have knowledge of that when I look at it. I'm not wise if I smoke the cigarette after that, right? I'm pretty, uh, I don't know, I I would say what what the book of Proverbs would call is foolish, right? To know the wisdom, or as James would say, to know the good and not do it, right? We wanna make sure that we know the good and do it. And so when we have knowledge and we gain that knowledge, we don't fall headlong heap into sin. We don't want to do that because we wanna grow in wisdom. And in fact, in the end times, it says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1, and I'm sure a lot of you guys are very familiar with this. It says, but realize this, and in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if you just come to Proverbs thinking, I'm just trying to gain knowledge, but not the practical wisdom and application of it, you could simply, especially as a non-believer, all you're doing is applying or understanding and learning factoids, but yet not actually applying it to your life. Because when we read the book of Proverbs and we even see the word wisdom that is used over 40 times in this book alone, the word that's used for wisdom is not just simply a smart thought. The word that's used for wisdom is also used in Exodus chapter 31 verse 3 and other places to describe being skillful. And so it's not just simply having this head knowledge or having a really smart thought. It's actually being skillful in practicing the very things that God has put in his word for us to practice. And so we want to be skillful in the knowledge that we have and practice that wisdom. 
And you see, when it comes to making sure that we're saved and we're not just hypocrites and we're not just, you know, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm a believer, but I do this, right? It's that, it's that dirty word, but, right? And I'm not talking uh, about the rear end here. But, uh, <laughs> but typically when you go online, right, or, or you talk to somebody at work, right? I had this all the time, right? Somebody would tell you, I'm a Christian, but, and then, they tell you everything contrary to Christian belief in the scriptures, right? So I'm a Christian, but I have no problem looking at pornography, right? I'm a Christian, but I have no problem with homosexual marriage. I'm a Christian, but, and then they give you some obscene view of Christianity, nowhere found in the Bible or the church. And so those kind of things, we want to make sure that we're ruffling feathers there. That we're saying, no, 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 you, you can't be a Christian unless the skillful wisdom is applied in your life. You see, you want to make sure that it's not just simply having head knowledge, but that you are now applying these very truths that come right from our creator and applying it here to our lives so that we can be skillful in the knowledge that we have and really have true wisdom. And it's a great place to start because Proverbs is written by Solomon. And I believe it's in chapter 25 where you have it collected by Hezekiah there, but Proverbs is written by Solomon. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, you have Solomon praying for wisdom. He receives wisdom. And then it tells us in 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 32 that he specifically wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,005 songs. And we have his best song. It's called the Song of Songs in some Bibles or the Song of Solomon in others. And yet we get to read these Proverbs, these Proverbs that God gave him, this word, this truth to us, to grow us. And I say all that to get us to verse one of chapter one of Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Now, first and foremost, a little background too here. I know that a lot of people, they, they question whether or not Solomon was saved in the end. And it's very interesting because even the very prophecy given to David about his son, David is warned or told at least, I don't know about warned, but told that his son is actually going to stray, but that God will bring him back with a rod. And my personal belief is that when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe that you get to see that. You get to see him looking back at his life and looking at the things done under the sun, right? Those things that are useless, really, ultimately, in light of eternity, and he ends it. He ends all of Ecclesiastes, this book of wisdom, with what? At the end, after everything's been written, after everything has been said, it, and this is a guy writing all these wis the wisdom literature here, after everything's been written, after everything's been said, guess what? You need to make sure that you remember that God is going to judge every deed, whether good or bad. Every single person is coming under judgment. And I think that when we see that and we see the prophecy, we recognize that Solomon, this is who he is, and God still used him in a mighty way. And if anyone knew uh, about, you know, floundering a bit or uh, squandering uh, the wisdom and the riches that God had given him, that's Solomon. And I love the book of Ecclesiastes. I, I, I've read that quite a few times over the last year and it is such a powerful book, and it really, it really, if you read it with the proper understanding of it, I think, uh, it can really be a benefit to your walk with Christ. Verse two, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, 
to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge, and discretion. So I always like when a book specifically tells you what it's written for, right? John chapter 20, it tells you it's written specifically what? So that you may know Jesus Christ. You may have life in his name. 1 John chapter 5, 13 tells us that these things were written that you may know, actually have an understanding and have confirmation of salvation. You may know you are saved. One is to get you saved and one letter is to make sure you know you are saved. I love when books do that. When God's word says, this is why I wrote it. So why did he write it? Here are the Proverbs. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. So when we see the book of Proverbs, we read this and we say, okay, God, if this is what you want me to learn, I want to learn it. If you wrote it, it's not an accident. You've given me this and you're telling me why you gave me this. I think it's, it's really, really beautiful when you, you can really think about it. You have, I, I think if you did Psalms, it takes about five Psalms a day. I mean, granted, one of those days you've got to read Psalm 119. That's a while. But uh, if you do five, five Psalms a day, you get it done in a month. If you, do it, if you did Proverbs, obviously one proverb a day, you get it done in one month. And you can really read them together and get through these and, and grow so much in your worship, right? And what's interesting, there's so much worship in Psalms, but yet over and over again, it refers back to God's word, right? So we worship him and we go back to his word. And then in Proverbs, it really tells us and, and explains to us how to apply these things to our life and how to grow and how to, how to have a beneficial walk with Christ. And I, and I really believe that when Jesus is telling us so clearly that it's his word by which we are edified by, it's his word by which we are sanctified by. We need to say, God, how can you sanctify me according to your word? How can my life line up more with the life of your son, but by guiding it according to your word? As Psalm 119 talks about to the young man, how, he, how will he keep his way pure? By guiding it according to God's word. So we go back to it and we go back to it and we really ruminate on it, right? We chew on it. You know, we're, we're, we're like, the, uh, like the cows with three stomachs, but hopefully, you know, not looking like a cow. You know, you want to make sure you try to stay in shape as best you can. But, but you want to ruminate on this stuff, right? You want to chew it up. You want to get as much out of it as you possibly can, right? Because this is God's word. He's given it to us for a reason. I've always likened it to, you know, my, my brother, he went off uh, to the army uh, when I started high school. And I was really close to my brother. He's the reason I wrestled. And um, he ended up taking off and, and going into the army. And he ended up being in Afghanistan for, I think, f almost four, maybe three and a half of the five years he was in the military. He was pretty much in Afghanistan. And so I would always have to wait for him. And, and we'd have these weird communications where it was like instant messaging. And that was like AOL. So you had dial up and all that stuff. And, and it was like, I would message him. And then five minutes later, he could message me back. And it was really hard to have a conversation that way, but it was exciting. And then he would write me longer letters. And I remember I loved my brother and I always looked up to him. And I was always so excited to hear what was going on. And sometimes when he would tell me those stories, they were pretty hard. I mean, some of the stuff that he told me that were that was going on with some of the young boys out there getting raped by some of the 
um, the people out there uh, that they were fighting and, and so forth and some of the bombs they were trying to send to blow their base up and, and things that were going on. It was really hard to read, but he was telling me it because it was the truth. He was telling me because that's what was going on. And if I just, you know, if I didn't care about what he had to say and didn't care about his letter, it probably shows you, guess what, that I don't really care about my relationship with him. I don't care about what he has to say. Like, whatever, you're gone. You're too far away. And I think for so many people, we can do that, even with the Word of God. But it gets okay. That's just some stories. And, you know, I'll get, when I'm having a tough time, I'll get back in the Word, you know. But it's like he wrote this 66-book love letter telling us and detailing to us the history not only before us, but also what's going to hap happen either in our lifetime or after us. The culmination of all things. And we go, yeah, I don't really have time for that. That's always so interesting to me. I'll ask somebody, I'm like, man, you get in the Word? And they're like, I don't really have much time. I'm like, oh, that's, that's weird, you know, because my buddy said you were on Xbox last night. You had time for that, <laughs> you know? You know, you're playing Halo or what, what is it, Fortnite, you know? But yeah, I just don't have time, you know? It's like, I've just been so busy, you know? And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird because you found time to do like everything and you got like the Bible on your phone. You could like literally read away, go to the bathroom. Like, I mean, this isn't hard, you know? You get into the word, you know? Jesus said, man does live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so if you want to grow in your walk with Christ, you want to grow in the wisdom of God and you want to be a skillful manager of the knowledge that he's given you, then we need to make sure we're digging in his word. And when he says, I'm writing this book through Solomon in order for you to know wisdom, to have instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, and to the, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. When you say, you know what, I want to grow that way. Verse 5, a wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Now, this is something that's really important to the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, over and over again, it mentions specifically making sure that we have wise counsel around us. And for us now, living under the new covenant specifically, not that this was different under the old covenant, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about us specifically making sure that we are not unequally yoked with non-believers making sure that our yoke is with believers. Our yoke is with those who are walking side by side with us in the same direction toward Jesus Christ, right? Because you need to have wise counsel around you. When you're going through something, you need to have wise counsel around you. I can't tell you how many younger people or people I've talked to when they were struggling, they got away from people in fellowship, they got away from people in the church, and next thing you know, they were getting advice from what the Bible describes, I'm not calling an individual this, I'm not trying to use any curse word, but what the Bible describes, a fool. Somebody who doesn't practice the wisdom of God, and now I'm getting advice specifically on things that are happening to me spiritually, and I'm now getting advice from the world. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that the prince of the power of the air, that Satan works through the sons of disobedience. You think he's not going to work through them to give you bad advice that doesn't line up with the word of God and maybe might sound okay and actually sound pretty good worldly? You, I can't tell you how many times where I've asked and talked to people and I said, where did you come up with that? That's just so unbiblical. 
He said, oh, my, you know, my buddy at work or, you know, my cousin or my this. And I'm like, well, that's not smart. Don't ask them for advice anymore. You know, I, that's, that's ridiculous, you know. If I'm, I'm going to go ask an accountant about my money, right, and make sure my taxes are all lined up. I'm certainly not going to take spiritual matters and take them to a non-believer who is a child of disobedience. I'm not going to do that. I want to have wise counselors. And so often, and I can say this, brothers in Christ who love the Lord, when they wanted to make a decision and they didn't want any pushback, they drew away from their brothers in Christ, didn't talk to them about it, made the decision, and then they're like, well, here it is now. What do I do now? And that's exactly what Proverbs is saying we should not do. We need to make sure we're counseling and listening to brothers in Christ and have a multitude of counselors. Because the Bible actually says right here in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, I actually made my son uh, memorize this and he was not happy with me, but he who hates correction is stupid, all right? We need to make sure we don't hate correction. If somebody corrects us in something, we need to go, you know what, I need, I need to get better at that. You're right. We need not take it as some offense. Like, I don't believe we have a right as believers to be offended anymore. That's a right that we laid at the cross. Because when it comes to being offended by, because by, somebody comes against something you've done, right? We already have that offense laid down at the cross. Jesus Christ has taken that offense. Somebody could say whatever they want and you let them say it what? You let it be a lie is what First Peter talks about. You let them make up stuff. Don't let it be true of you of some wickedness. Somebody's maligning you. It should be because you're following Christ. It shouldn't be because you're not following Christ and so they malign you. That's not a, a trial. That's you just going into sin, right? So we need to make sure that we're having wise counselors and they're helping us grow and you keep them around you. And that is a theme throughout Proverbs. And it's important for us to make sure that's a theme in our life. And then we will acquire wisdom. Verse six, to understand a proverb, a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we want to make sure that we're not despising instruction. We want to make sure we're growing through the instruction that we receive. And we want to make sure it all starts in the same place, the fear of the Lord. And that's what I, I meant at the beginning when I said we have to make sure we're right with Christ first. Ultimately, that's first and foremost. I remember I was listening to a testimony of a Major League Baseball player. He was on, he was, he's on the Cardinals now. His name's Paul Goldschmidt. And he, he's, they were asking him, you know, he was in the minor leagues. He was just, you know, schlubbing around, not doing too well. And they were asking him, you know, they, they, he shared his testimony. And they're like, so how'd you you know, come to Christ. And he said, you know, I was doing terrible. I wasn't able to hit. And uh, they said, I'm going to send you down with this guy, Turner Ward. Well, Turner Ward happened to be a Christian. And so the first thing uh, when he was like, yeah, this is, you know, I got a hitch in my swing. I got this. I got, I think I got this going on. Turner Ward looks to him and says, well, how's your relationship with Jesus Christ? And he's like, what does that have to do with baseball? You know, what's going on? You know, next thing you know, the guy gives his life to Christ and he's hitting 40 home runs. Now, that doesn't happen for everybody. I've prayed a lot and I can't even hit a home run in softball. But nonetheless, all right, I've come close. That fence keeps, you know, you guys know. <laughs> it's just key. I got warning track power. All the weedies don't help, you know. But, uh, but nonetheless, it was one of those things. It was very interesting to me that that was what 
got him on the right track. He was thinking about all these things, but once he had that, that centered, once he had knew and understood, I need to make sure my relationship's right with Christ and with my wife at home, then all of a sudden he became, you know, an all-star. And it's really interesting though, because when we look at specifically the greatest commandment that Jesus gives, right, when he, he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And one like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. But specifically, we have to do the first before we can do that second one, right? We have to make sure we're in right relationship with God so that you can properly view your neighbor as the person that they are. Because if I view you as a co-heir with Christ, as I'm, I'm called to in Scripture, and I look out and I see my co-heirs with Christ, that all of us are blood-bought believers, right? It doesn't matter Jew or Scythian, barbarian, right? It does not matter, but we are blood-bought believers, and I know that meeting with you, no matter who it is, no matter what we look like, no matter what, you know, hobbies we like or whatever it may be, we have Jesus Christ in common, and my worldview completely changes, and I go, guess what? That's a blood-bought believer, and we need to make sure that we're edifying each other, that I'm not just putting them down. I'm not just giving them, you know, sharp arrows and saying, ah, I'm just kidding, right? But that I continue to encourage them. Does that mean sometime rebuking them? You bet it does. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.16, when it says every word, every single word of scripture is theanustos, God breathed, it's used for correction and reproof and the training of righteousness so that a man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. And part of that is reproving, rebuking, and exhorting your brothers or sisters in Christ. So we need that too. And that also gets me in a better understanding of loving my neighbor as myself, that I myself was once a lost individual who somebody witnessed to before I came to know Christ. So what should that put on my heart? To go forth and preach the gospel because there are plenty of people out there lost. In fact, the way is what? Narrow but broad is the way that leads to destruction. The way to Christ is narrow. So we have so many people. I don't need to go on a mission trip to Zimbabwe when I have Subway, right? And, and when you have your mind renewed that your relationship is right with Jesus Christ and now you are loving him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you now have kingdom goggles by which to see the rest of the world and you see the lost and you see the saved. And both of them, no matter the encounter you have in your life, both of them need something from you. If it's, a, if it's a non-believer, it should be an encounter to witness to them. It doesn't always mean you get through the gospel. It could just mean showing them love and eventually, hopefully, starting that conversation. I love friendship apologetics. Hi, my name is Chad. You need Jesus, you know? We're good friends now, right? Because I told them the truth. And I also love sharing with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love fellowship. And I can tell you this, it is so refreshing it's like the dew of Mount Hermon, as the Bible says. That's how it is. I don't know about you guys. That's how it's always been for me, even as a young believer. When I would fellowship with people, brothers and sisters in Christ, I just feel refreshed. Man, I can meet a brother that I've never talked to. We're just walking across the street. We recognize we're believers. Next thing you know, praise the Lord. And I'm walking and I'm excited to leave them, right? And that's because it's supposed to be that way. Because the institutionalized religion of the theocratic system of Israel, right? All of that, right? God had a purpose for those things, right? 
They were a shadow of things to ultimately come. But the fact is the new covenant that we are part of now, the one that's promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 38, the one that is quoted, those, those same verses that are quoted in Hebrews chapter eight and chapter 10 about the new covenant. The new covenant is not just institutionalization, but actually a, a covenant written on the hearts of men. And so now we have this, this church that's not just, hey, we gotta meet in Jerusalem and we gotta make sure that we, we get our sacrifices there, but the sacrifice was paid once and for all, for all sins, because the blood of bulls and goats could never do that. And it's been, it's been paid and bought for. The, the blood of bulls and goats and stuff could never say to Telestai. It could never say paid in full. Your sin has been bought and paid for. It could just cover them. And then you gotta do it again. And then you got to do it again. But we have Jesus Christ crucified once and for all. And now because of that, not only do we have fellowship with the Father, the, the, the veil has been torn and we can go right to the Holy of Holies and come right to him and speak to him. But we also have fellowship one with another. And we get to have that koinonia because of all of that, because of the new covenant system that we have, that no matter where we go, we, we can find brothers and sisters in Christ. We go to Mexico, we go to Costa Rica, we go to Israel, no matter where we go, even people that we don't speak the same language, we're still hugging and loving and sharing Jesus as best we can. And I'll find interpreters, right? But it, it's a beautiful thing, and this is the promise of the new covenant. It would be like this. That's the promise that Jesus gave to the woman at the well, she was like, Where, are we supposed to worship here? Are we supposed to worship there? A time is coming, and now is, that it doesn't matter where you are. God is searching for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's the new covenant that we have. And so we start from there, the fear of the Lord, as the beginning of knowledge. Or later you'll read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so that is where we start and when we start there with the fear of the Lord, a proper understanding of who he is and a proper relationship where we're loving Jesus Christ, then we can move forward with also our brother and sister in Christ. How many people have flown airplanes recently, right? They, what are they all? It's always the same thing, right? They, they tell you something, but there is wisdom in it, right? When it comes to the mask, if something happens and it drops down, the first thing you need to do is make sure you're breathing first and then make sure it's on your child because if you pass out, you're no good to anybody right? And so if you are not in a right relationship with Christ and you're running headlong into sin and you're trying to go witness and do this stuff, all you're doing is some works-based religion. And you're like, well, maybe I'll feel more saved if I do more works. Rather than resting in the, the cross of Jesus Christ, him crucified, the blood of the Son of God, dying for your sins, and resting in that, knowing that he is now our Sabbath rest that never leaves. It's not some you know, Friday, Saturday night thing, but we fully are at rest at all times, and we can rest in that salvation and then go forth and do those works for Christ so that those works are wrought in God and not simply for outward appearance. They're not simply these works that you are doing in order to earn your salvation, but ones that are evident of the new heart that is within you. And so we do that going forward, and now we have our love with God, a love for who he is, and then we can love the people that he died for, which is the entire world. Amen? Verse 8, hear my son, your father's instructions, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are, they are like a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. 
Now, verse 10, it's very interesting when we get to verse 10. Obviously, verses 8 and 9 are, are it's so important, and, I, and for, uh, you know, for believers, having a, a mom that can share the truth with you, how awesome is that, right? Amen. I can tell you this, as a husband of a wife that loves Jesus, one thing I just love and adore is the fact that my wife can share Jesus with my kids. She's excited about it. Uh, she's excited about theology questions when we get into the car and the stuff the kids are asking and so forth. And being able to have that wisdom in the truth and be able to share it to your children is so abundantly important. There's nothing more important than that. In Deuteronomy 6, when it talks specifically about the Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, it then tells you that you are supposed to be teaching your children this, not just on Sunday school, not just on Wednesday nights, but you're supposed to be teaching your children this as you walk by the way. Everywhere you go, this should be your lifestyle. It's not, you know, we do devotionals as well as a family, but ultimately our life is a devotional. We, we, we just talk scripture. They see us, and they're going to be able to see if we're really practicing, and we actually are the wisdom practicers, the skillful practicers of the wisdom that God has given us. And they're going to know it better than probably the entire church knows it, Right? They don't just see Instagram highlights. They see the bad, right? They see when you're frustrated. They see when you, maybe you've stepped over that line where you've had an outburst of anger, right? They're gonna see those things. And yet they're gonna know, is that the narrative of my parents' life? Or are those the times they went away from what the word of God says and then we are able to humble ourselves and say, you know what, I was wrong there. And, and love them in the truth. And so they're going to see whether or not you're actually a skillful worker when it comes to the knowledge of God and what he's given you. They're going to see if you actually have that practical wisdom. And so it's important for us to have that and to give that instruction and share with them not only in, in word but also in your deed. Verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole, as those who go down to the pit. It's very interesting because I remember something that happened, I believe it was either 2012 or 2013. I think it was 2013. A man named Chris Lane, he was actually from Australia, but he was playing college baseball out here in the United States, and he was gunned down and killed. He was a young man, and the young boys who killed him were all under 18. I think they were like 16, 17. And they were like, well, what happened? Why did you kill this guy? Like, this, you have no connection to him. What happened? And they said he was just, they were just bored. And they said, well, why don't we go kill someone? And they went out and did it. Like, when I read this proverb, I thought, well, when would that ever happen? This actually happened right here in the United States. I'm sure it's not the only time. But this is exactly why. And it sounds crazy, right? Like that's just some weird thing to happen. But the fact is, the Bible is really clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. It says that because people are deceived by it. Bad company corrupts good morals. And you would be astonished by some of the things that some even my high school wrestlers have told me that their friends tried to convince them to do. You would be astonished by the things they've been convinced to do. And I was one of those people before I was saved. Not necessarily killed, but yeah, I would convince people to get in fights and beat up and so forth because I was of the prince of the power of the air. 
because I was a walking child of disobedience being used by Satan. And so we need to recognize this and say, I will do everything I can to guard my child from these things, to make sure they do not consent and give in. Don't give in to the evil. In fact, don't give in to that small, dirty word known as compromise. Those little things, those little parts of conviction that your child has, and they start just itching away at it, just knocking it off like it's no big deal. <clears throat> those, those parts, those parts in their life, those things that they're convicted by, we want to make sure that we cultivate true conviction according to the word of God, not just these weird rules that don't match up with the word of God, but actual things that will keep them in the love of God. We want to make sure they can be there as best as we can. Ultimately, they have to make their own decision, but let's be these ones crying out, do not consent to that evil. Don't fall into it, son or daughter. Don't do it. I don't want to see you fall into that. Verse 13, we shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. So look at this. You have a situation where you have these young men enticing and saying, let's all do this, let's all go and kill. But what ultimately takes place? They're the one by their own greed, by their own wickedness that lose their life in the end. And it reminds me so much of Psalm chapter 73, a Psalm of Asaph. If you remember in Psalm chapter 73, he specifically starts it off with, surely God is good to Israel. He gives you the end before he goes through all the tough times that he went through. And he gives you the end at the very beginning so that you know this Psalm is starting with my finished conclusion that surely God is good. But then he says, my feet, as for me, my feet almost slipped. Why? Because he got his eyes off of the Lord and onto the wicked. And how they were never hungry. They were fat, fat, dumb, and happy, so to speak, right? They, they never, they, all these great wealth that they have, everything that's going on, he got his eyes off the Lord. But then he said, then I stepped into the sanctuary of God. And then I recognized their end, that God sets their feet on slippery places. So ultimately, he saw, wait a second, the end is what matters because we believe in a, a God that has a culmination of history happening, right? It's not cyclical. God, you know, the world is not, time is not just a flat circle, all right? That this thing has an end. There's a culmination. In fact, we live with that. With the helmet of salvation on, we live with the understanding that one day we will be with Jesus forever and always. That one day he will wipe away every tear. Every one of them. I absolutely love thinking about that. I hate, you know, when, you're, uh, when your little kids get hurt, right? More of my daughters. My sons, it's like, it's okay. But my daughters, one of them get hurt, man. I'm like, oh, they're crying. And no matter how much I hold them and kiss them, 
I can't do anything. I want him to stop crying, you know, not because, I mean, yeah, of course it's loud, but, um, you know, the, the real reason is I hate them seeing him sad. And it's like, as a father, I, I, I love promising the promise that God gave us, not my promises, but the promise that God gave us that one day he'll wipe away every tear, that there's a culmination. And that culmination, there's a good and a bad to that. And we live our lives according to that understanding that ultimately this will all be culminated in us being with Jesus forever. And some people, a lot of people, without him forever, but getting what they deserve. And we live in light of that. Verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. This is wisdom personified, crying out to people. And this is so important because I've seen people read this text and and the finish of this chapter and come away somewhat confused, come away thinking maybe God has rejected me. But that's precisely the opposite of what is taking place here. Not that people won't be rejected, but it tells us why and the because of the people that will be rejected. Verse 22. How long, O naive ones, will you love simplicities? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. And fools hate knowledge. Notice that. That's a willful ignorance of not wanting to know the truth. In fact, that's what it describes in the end times when it said God gives them over to the delusion in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that they won't believe the truth because they wouldn't come to the truth. They refuse the truth over and over again. Anyone who tells you that God has not attempted to reach them or somehow, you know, God just hasn't given me enough evidence, they're a liar. The fact is that when we look at creation, God has made it evident within us, according to Romans chapter 1, that when we look at creation, we know there is a creator. I've never looked at a painting and thought, wow, that is so weird, all that paint just blobbed around and made that nice portrait. Never thought it. Never looked at a building and thought, isn't it great when scrap metal comes together? Isn't it great what they can accomplish? No, I've never thought that, and it'd be foolish to think something as dumb as that. But that is atheism. That, that's what it is. It's foolish talk. It's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Or as Joe says, it's like holding down the jack-in-the-box and just turning it and says, this thing must be broken as it's just trying to pop up the whole time. The fact is, is, not only do we have the creative order that God has given us, but the Holy Spirit has gone out convicting the entire world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The fact is our consciousness, everyone has been born with a conscience that bears witness against us that some people sear as with a hot iron. The fact is he's written his law on our hearts. The fact is, is that prophecy is out there for all to read. The fact is, is that Jesus Christ himself died a public death, rose again in resurrection on the third day publicly, gave them many convincing proofs, and he draws all men when he was lifted up to himself. Guess what? Nobody is without excuse by times over, times over, and times over. No one is without excuse. And here is wisdom personified, crying out from the street tops, crying out. Verse 23, turn to my reproof. 
Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you if they turn to his reproof. But he's going to tell us specifically what they do with that reproof that he gives them. I will pour out my spirit on you. Verse 24, because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel and did not want any of my reproof. So there's the because. Because I called and you didn't answer. You scorned it, actually. You turned it aside. You wanted nothing to do with me. I've given you everything. Whenever I think about that, when someone says God hasn't done enough or he hasn't given me enough evidence or so forth, he didn't even withhold his own son. I mean, think about that. For you who have children, think about that. It's uh, my second born's birthday today, a little justice. It's his birthday today, and I was just elated. I'm kind of just excited because he loves his birthday. He just gets so excited. Like, he's been asking for literally three months, how many days until my birthday? How many days until my birthday? And he counts it down. He's, he's kind of crazy about it. But he knows, you know, we're, we, we try to make it special, you know. We really we love that little guy. He's such a sweetheart. And I, I think about it all the time, you know, because, and I, I use this analogy, but I'll use it again because it, it's something that is always in my head and in my heart because whenever someone says that to me, it always breaks my heart that they don't understand the reality of what Jesus went through on the cross, but also the Father, They don't understand the reality of the gospel, the weight of it. And I always try to look at it as, you know, my son. You know, if somebody came to me and they said to me, you know, hey, you know, Chad, uh, I hate to do this to you. I hate to put this on you. But um, there's a lot of people over here and the only way they're going to be saved, they're going to need, your son has to die to save them. You know, I'd be like you know, dude, I'm sorry, I I can't do it. I love my son, I I can't do that. And okay, you know, he goes away, he comes back and he's like, hey, you know, I don't know if this helps at all, but uh, all, you know, those people your son has to die for, you know, they're all horrible criminals, like really bad, really bad criminals. Can you give us your son? (laughs) Well, thank you for making it an easier choice. That's great. Uh, that's a big no. All right, all right. Third time comes back. La- last shot here. All right, all right, Chad. Last shot. Uh, you know, remember those people I told you about? All those crimes they committed? They were actually against you. Yeah, they, uh, they stole from you, you know. Um, now they did this to your son. They did this, they did that, and so forth. So will you give us your son? I'd be like you know, you could get away as fast as possible now. Now I'm frustrated, right? But that's the reality of the gospel, right? In Romans chapter five, it actually says, while someone might die, might die for a righteous man. Maybe somebody would do that, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so I couldn't give my only son. I wouldn't offer that for a bunch of criminals. But yet God himself gave his only son, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, and talk about power, talk about restrained power, could have stopped it at any moment, brought on the angels, 
wiped everyone out. Forget your Thanos and that stuff. I mean, every molecule, right? Just incredible what he could have done. And yet he refrained. And in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus ever walked on this earth to prophesy, it says it pleased God to crush him. First time I read that, I couldn't fathom it. What does that mean? God, I don't understand. How did it please you to do this? He was stricken. He was bruised. His beard ripped out. How did it please you for this to happen? You're going to end it at any moment. But ultimately, it's because the offspring that's promised there is a spiritual offspring, and that's us sitting right here. Isn't that incredible? You think about that? That is so much love. And I know for moms that have sons, you, come on. You know you love your, your, your boys and your girls, but, you know, it's got to be so, just think about that, how God gave his only son. So I, I look at that and I think, wow, to turn that down and to turn that away and to not have enough time for him, although he's called and called, it just shows you exactly that he's not joking. He's been calling them and they're the ones rejecting him. Here's what it says will happen. The because, now we get because this will happen. Verse 26. I will even laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come on you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Notice here, he's rejecting them when? Because they're only coming to him not for who he is. They're coming to him for what they can get. And the reality is, is that salvation is not an idea. It's not a philosophy. Salvation is found in the person of Jesus Christ and a right relationship with him. When the veil was torn and for us to go right there into the Holy of Holies and be able to go right to the Father, that's only through Jesus Christ and his blood spilt on our behalf. It is for a right relationship with him, people that will come to him, people right now on a Wednesday night in America for a Jew that died in Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel that was promised. I was just looking at Matthew 24, and this is a little off topic, but It's so incredible when I think of Matthew chapter 24, right? The Olivet Discourse. And you think specifically about him telling you what's going to happen in the end times. Here's what happened. You're going to have wars and rumors of the wars. People are going to kill you and everything, right? But it says this. and, And these words, we read them now as we sit in America reading our Bibles in English, Right? And, and we, we read them and it's beautiful and it's like, wow, God's prophesying this. And it says, this gospel will be preached into all nations and then the end will come. And we go, wow, of course, you know, we're in America. We send out missionaries. This church right here sends out missionaries all the time, right? We think, oh, that's amazing. But think about this. This is before Jesus went to the cross. This is when first the gospel was going to the Jews This is before he tells the apostles you would do greater things, not that they will do greater things in the resurrection, but that ultimately their message will go forth out of there and expand to the entire world. This prophecy that Jesus was saying was said when just a very, very few people knew the gospel at all. 
And then that resurrection that would take place would cause an explosion of the gospel that would send it out worldwide and do so in the language of Greek that everybody would understand almost because Alexander the Great, hundreds of years before that, had pretty much conquered everything. When it says that Jesus came at the right time, at the right time Christ died for us, I don't think that's on accident. Because there was no other time. Think the Romans were making roads. Everything that had to take place right then and there. And for Jesus to have the audacity to say something like that, when, guess what? He was hushing people, right? He was hushing people when he would, when he would heal them sometimes. And yet, it was gonna go out from there and that truth was proclaimed right there and then it did go out to all the nations and that's why we are sitting here worshiping him right now. I think it's a prophecy that a lot of times we go right over and we go, yeah, that's cool because now we look at it in retrospect. But think about what he was saying at that moment when he was saying it and how powerful it is that it's true and we're here fulfilling that great commission and that promise. And if you want to see Jesus come back, you need to preach the gospel to every nation. Amen? Amen. We're almost done here with this one. So we got the because, right? The mocking and the calamity. They don't actually want to know him. They just want to get out of trouble, right? This was my prayer life before I got saved. Before I became an atheist, my prayer life, I, I remember specific times hiding from cops and praying that God would get me out of it, right? I remember specific times praying, God, please help me win this wrestling match, right? Whatever, right? Help me get out of this trouble. Help my mom. You know, I definitely forged my, you know, progress report a couple times, figured out the type and all that. And, you know, everything's fine. You know, please let my mom, you know, that, that's, that was my prayer life. All right. And those prayers were an abomination for the Lord because I was an unsaved degenerate. But that was when I would go to him, not actually because I'm recognizing I'm a sinner in need of his help, this is a people that are rejecting him no matter what course of action he's taken to draw them to himself. And then in verse 30, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive shall kill them and the complacency of fools shall destroy them. I think about that too, complacency. How often is that what's going on in so many people's life? It's not, some people like just full out hate God and reject him. And some people just say, I don't really have time for him. Whether they say it in word or deed, I just don't have time for him. That complacency, not seeking after him. In the very next chapter, it says, if you seek after him as you would find treasure and precious silver, you'll find him and come to the knowledge of the Lord, come to fear him. That's what we need to do. We need to seek him. Not just ideas, not just philosophies. We need to seek him. And I say, I want to know him. Be like Moses. Lord, teach me your ways, not so that I may know stuff about you. Teach me your ways so that I may know you. We need to go after Jesus. We need to go after the Father. We need to pray, the Holy Spirit, pray that the Holy Spirit would ignite in our hearts a need to know our God more intimately. Verse 33, but he who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil. Man, doesn't Proverbs 1 just end perfectly, right? 
He listens to me. Shall live securely. And guys, I want to encourage you, and this will be the last thing I say tonight. When it comes to your salvation, we need to have assurance of it. We need to make sure, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, we need to make our calling and election sure. And we do that by knowing who Christ is. One of the beautiful things is knowing that Jesus died for us. I love not having to worry about that. You have theological systems like Calvinism where you can never know if Jesus died for you. There's nobody you've met that Jesus didn't die for. Not one person. I think that's a Josh McDowell line. Or, yeah. And I love that line. You've never met somebody that Jesus didn't die for, no matter how angry they were. <laughs> right? And the fact is, we need to make sure we live this securely. Have that wisdom. Have that skillful knowledge where you're practicing it. And when you're practicing it, what's going to happen? When you practice, you have this knowledge, you know who Jesus is, and you practice it with wisdom, you're going to live securely and you'll be at ease from the dread of evil. Amen? Stand up for me. Let's all rise and give a little prayer before we get out of here.